Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen, and step into the mirror maze. Watch out, that reflection is cold and hard. Don't want to walk right into it. Ouch! That had to hurt. Left, not right, come on. As you stumble along this mirror maze of the super information highway, or surf the web, gazing at all the sites and all the profiles of people pretending to be things that they're not, the old friends, ex-lovers, and freaks who have slipped inside your feed. Imagine, if you will, that one is a murderer, a cold-blooded killer, and you could be next. Maybe even worse than a murderer, a necrophile, a cannibal, a desecrator of the human body, hiding in that mirror maze of the internet with you, ready to cast images up on those distorted glass walls that will terrify you to the core. Get ready, because he was out there among us, and he was a bad, bad boy. This is the story of the postmodern mirror maze of the internet and Luca Rocco Magnata. If one had to find a modern day equivalent to the sideshow, it would definitely be the internet. Scrolling down through Facebook and Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, YouTube, even the news is like passing the freak show exhibits while strolling down the midway, all the human oddities presenting themselves as they wish to be seen, selling themselves from news anchors to celebrities and influencers to your old friend from high school, and let's face it, even ourselves. Vanity itself is seen as a virtue on the internet. And like the old freaks of yore, we can turn our abnormalities and talents into anything we like and change them on a whim. Professor and film critic Eric Kazdine calls this a reality culture, characterized by a constant thirst for footage, from social media to surveillance cameras, YouTube videos, and even amateur porn. This footage of footage of footage which begins to lose its meaning, becoming an imitation of itself, a funhouse mirror representation of reality, is often called meta today, but it has its origins in postmodern literary theory. Postmodernism considers reality to be a mental construct. And in his famous 1981 book, Simulcara and Simulation, French philosopher Jean Baudrillard describes an age of simulation in which the reality we perceive is largely replaced by copies which substitute for reality. 
He uses the example of the caves of Lascaux. And to preserve these fragile caves from the destructive ways of tourists, an exact replica was built so people could view them without harming them. Baudrillard claims that in doing so, both the real caves and the fake caves lost their meaning. He said, It is possible that the memory of the original caves is itself stamped in the minds of future generations. But from now on, there is no longer any difference. The duplication suffices to render both artificial. At first, reality is simply imitated. But the more sophisticated the imitation is, the more the differences between the two begin to disappear, rendering them both fake at some point, as reality is only what we conceive it to be. In other words, copies have substituted reality in our minds. And in what Baudrillard called the age of simulation, the real is no longer just copied, but entirely substituted by its copy, as if the real was never even there to begin with. And soon we are seeing copies of copies that begin to become distorted and disfigured. We can see this with celebrities and politicians, how we begin to see actors not as who they are, but by what parts they've played. And now with the age of social media, we see this even in our friends and ourselves. The internet in particular shows patterns of reality rather than reality itself. One of the greatest examples I've ever seen to demonstrate postmodernism is when the Dr. Phil show covered bum fights. Now, bum fights itself is a bit of a freak show, hyper postmodernism itself. If you don't remember, it came out before the extreme internet culture we have now, alongside shows that fused reality television with ridiculous and shocking stunts. Shows like Jackass and The Tom Green Show. Bum fights, basically, exploited drug addicts and homeless people by having them do stupid stunts. Some very extreme, like pulling their teeth out with pliers or eating frogs. Bum fights was incredibly controversial at the time, and in the brewing controversy was featured on the Dr. Phil show, which is also an example of postmodernism run amok. First, it's important to understand that Dr. Phil, real name Philip McGraw, is not a real doctor. While he does have a PhD in psychology and used to have a license, he is no longer a licensed psychologist and cannot legally practice in the state of California, where he lives and films his show. When he was practicing, he was accused of sexual inappropriateness and other scandals that led the Texas State Board of Examiners of Psychologists to issue him a letter of reprimand assign a psychologist to monitor his practice and required him to take an ethics class and complete psychological evaluation. He himself 
has told the American Psychological Association that he doesn't see himself as his guest therapist, and he does not consider what he does on his show to be psychology. Dr. Phil regularly exploits mental illness for not just ratings and views, but for laughs, encouraging his audience to jeer and laugh at his guests. One of his guests had such a significant mental breakdown backstage that she was involuntarily committed to a mental health facility. He also had a guest on his show for alcohol addiction, and they actually put a bottle of vodka in this guy's dressing room, then gave him a Xanax. Afterwards, the poor guy couldn't even walk, so they literally carried him out onto the stage in a chair. Yikes. So Dr. Phil's more of an exploiter of human oddities than a presenter. Exactly. Also, he's a distorted mirror image of a doctor. A reflection of a reflection of a reflection beamed onto television screens and minds across the planet. But as I was saying, he has one of the creators of Bum Fights, a guy by the name of Ty Beeson, onto the show on December 12th, 2006. And it was truly unbelievable. The epitome of postmodernism. Ty Beeson shows up dressed exactly like Dr. Phil. Like, I don't, I guess Dr. Phil just wears the same types of suits because it was crazy. He, the suit so matched his. And he had his head shaved on the top to perfectly match Phil's bald dome. And he's got that signature mustache. The resemblance was truly uncanny. They're just these distorted mirror images of each other, both based on a fake personality. I gotta look that one up. Oh, it's on YouTube. It's you, you gotta watch it. Yeah. It's the perfect example of what Baudrillard called a simulacrum, a copy without an original. Yeah, exactly. And when Dr. Phil calls Ty Beeson despicable and kicks him off the show, Ty says to him. If you think I exploit people, every time you bring a guest on this show, you exploit them and spread whatever problems they have to the whole world. Oh, it's uh, hard to argue with that. Right. It uh, seems like he's probably right. They're distorted mere images of each other, both literally and figuratively, that are presenting distorted mere images of the world for profit. When it comes to copies, substituting reality, and masks and mirrors that hide an emptiness and abyss, there is no finer example than our subject today, murderer, necrophile, and cannibal, Luca, Rocco, Magnata. Even the names are fake. His real name is Eric Newman, and he would also sometimes go by Jimmy and Vladimir, among many other aliases. He lied about where he was from, telling people he was Russian, despite his obvious Canadian accent. He even faked having plastic surgery to get on a reality show about plastic surgery. Fakes of fakes of fakes of fakes of fakes. He wanted to be a superstar and faked it and faked it with copies of himself internet sock puppets that sang his praises as a model 
and gay porn star. He was his own biggest fan and his own biggest promoter in an escalating fury that finally led to one of the most macabrely famous and heinous of murders that the world had ever seen. And see it they did, most literally. And his biggest tool in his quest for fame and stardom was the internet. And the internet is a global system of interconnected computer networks. It is basically a network of networks that consists of private, public, academic, business, and government networks from local to global scope, linked by a broad array of electronic, wireless, and optical networking technologies. The origins of the internet date back to the 1960s when United States Department of Defense commissioned research into the time sharing of computers. In the 1970s, the primary precursor network, the ARPANET, initially served as a backbone for the interconnection of regional, academic, and military networks to enable resource sharing. In the 1980s, the funding of the National Science Foundation network led to a worldwide participation in the development of new networking technologies and the merger of many networks. The linking of commercial networks and enterprises by the early 1990s marked the beginning of the transition to the modern internet, where we're talking to you right now. Hello from the internet. <laughs> We've discussed the internet as being the modern-day equivalent of a freak show and one of the first sites on the internet to display all sorts of human oddities from bizarre medical conditions, such as a Filipino man whose body was completely covered with postulate tumors or elephantitis of the testicles, to celebrity death photos, orange juice enemas, and even pornographic World War II propaganda was Rotten.com, which called itself the soft white underbelly of the net, eviscerated for all to see. Yup, Rotten.com was a shock site active from 1996 to 2012. The website, which had the tagline, an archive of disturbing illustration was devoted to morbid curiosities, deformities, autopsy and forensic photographs, perverse sex acts, and disturbing historical wonders. As Salon Magazine's Janelle Brown said, if the net is a library of the collective consciousness, a vast collection of human fantasies, fears, and obsessions, then Rotten.com represents the darkest, deepest, most sordid side of human nature. Rotten.com was run by a developer known as Soylent Communications, who said, Rotten.com serves as a beacon to demonstrate that censorship of the internet is impractical, unethical, and wrong. Adding that everything he posts can be found elsewhere. As he says, to censor this site, it would be necessary to censor medical texts, history texts, evidence rooms, courtrooms, 
art museums, libraries, and other sources of information vital to the functioning of a free society. Soylent bought the URL in 1996 just because he liked the name and decided to throw up a few joke pictures. But humans are voyeurs at heart, drawn to the macabre and horrific, and they flock to the site, including Howard Stern, who brought the site to mainstream attention when he sang its praises on air. Then, in 1997, Soylent posted a controversial photo of Princess Diana's supposed corpse, and the site's reputation was sealed. The photo was a fake, a perfect example of Baudrillard's simulacrum, something fake that desires to be real and offers itself as reality in reality's place. But that didn't stop the global press from running countless horrified editorials that only brought more visitors to the site. In another example of Baudrillard's postmodern simulacrum, the site showed the image of a man eating a fried human fetus that caused an investigation by both the FBI and Scotland Yard. The fetus was a fake, and the image was created by a Chinese artist. But being offered up in reality's place, this image of an image became so real in the mind of the world that it was investigated by the highest forms of law enforcement. Much like Cannibal Holocaust, which we talked about in last week's episode. Totally. Another perfect example. But slowly, the internet was becoming more and more regulated. On Thursday, June 23rd, 2005, the amended Section 2257 record-keeping regulations went into effect, which stipulated that every performer portrayed in a visual depiction of actual sexually explicit conduct is over the age of 18. It sounds like a good thing. I mean, come on, let's face it. It's a good thing, it, it, you know. Mm -hmm. But remember, Alberto Gonzalez, the U.S. attorney at the time, and his boss, George Bush, were both evangelical Christians with an agenda, namely censorship. A lot of adult humor sites that were not pornographic at all were affected, as well as Shock sites like Rotten.com. And this is the same administration who put the Patriot Act into effect, which limited some of the freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. The Patriot Act was meant to just go after terrorists. But when it was used to go after common criminals, the Bush administration's John Ashcroft defended this, saying, quote, prosecutors should use all the tools available to them. And most importantly, distributor was redefined to include anyone posting an image on an internet website. And any site affected by 2257 had to also publish a physical address that serves as its place of business. Someone must be available at that address 20 hours a week just in case a law enforcement officer wants to gain access to those 2257 records. Not a big deal to some places like Pornhub or Penthouse.com, 
But think of all the mom and pop adult websites, run out of private residences, or webcam girls who had to publish their physical address online, which I guess would be their house, thus leaving those performers really vulnerable to stalking and harassment. Yeah, right. It was really, they were just, it's a form of censorship in a way, but uh, it wasn't just regulations killing sites like Rotten.com. There were new acts in town. With the rise of social media, many sites fell by the wayside. While in its heyday, Rotten.com was getting 200,000 hits a day. By 2009, it would be lucky to get that in a week. And by 2012, Rotten.com was no longer publishing content. And these new acts coming onto the internet, they weren't just other little sideshow acts. They were whole circuses to themselves, like YouTube, where all kinds of modern-day freaks could market themselves, and Facebook and Twitter, where you could see big-name celebrities presenting themselves as human oddities, and you could even join them, embellishing yourself to create any identity you want. As we said on our History of the Sideshow, being a freak means you can be anything you want to be. It's all an act. As Kurt Vonnegut put it, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. And as Luca Magnata said, if you don't like the reflection, then don't look in the mirror. So let's get into this Luca Magnata, who certainly understood the internet was a freak show where you could present yourself however you wanted to be seen. Luca Magnata was born Eric Kirk Newman on July 24th, 1982. His mother Anna was just 16 and his father Donald only 17. They'd go on to have two more children, a boy named Conrad and a girl named Melissa. It was tough to say the least. Luca's father Don would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia and he was reportedly a proud Nazi and a racist, a Hitler enthusiast and Aryan nation supporter, and he was known to hang swastikas on the walls. He didn't want to live in normal society, and so he forbid the children to go to public schools where he thought their minds would be poisoned, choosing instead to homeschool them. Luca's mother said, Life with him was like being in a cult. He was our feared leader, and we were conditioned, compliant followers. He was violent and cruel as well, slapping and shoving the children, especially little Luca, or Eric as he was known then, holding him down and calling him by homophobic slurs like the F word. Anna claims he held her at gunpoint, beat her black and blue, and raped her whenever the urge came over him. That he had her convinced if she ever left him, he'd kill her. Things just kept getting worse. Don got fired from his job for stealing. He couldn't find another job and sat around in a drunken stupor all night and day. The mortgage didn't get paid, and they lost their house in Ontario and had to move to Toronto to stay in Don's family's house. But... In 1995, Anna had finally had it and leaves Don 
So Anna and the kids move into her mother's house for a bit. Anna's mother had always been a refuge for them, a safe port in the storm that was her first marriage. Then she gets an apartment of her own, and the kids are entered into the public school system for the first time. And it is an absolute nightmare for little Eric, or Luca, as he would go on to be called. Luca was picked on, teased, bullied, just straight up abused. Right from the start, the other children mocked him and tortured him, calling him gay slurs. He liked to wear his hair slicked back and was not only teased for this, but was assaulted. Bullies constantly ruffling his hair. He hated that, most of all. He was uh, really sensitive about his hair and couldn't stand to have anyone touch it. He became fascinated with Marilyn Monroe, reading books about her, even writing a report for school on her. He watched her movies incessantly. He began to think of himself like her, alluring, gorgeous, as well as very sexual. Meanwhile, Anna found herself a new man and was pregnant again, and the family moved in with Leo Bellinger, who Anna says was a worse abusive drunk than Eric's father. And he was especially violent and cruel to Eric. He'd tease him about how he dressed and looked, scream into his face that he was a quote-unquote pussy. So when Eric, soon-to-be Luca, was 16, he packed his belongings and moved to his grandmother's house in Bethany, Ontario. Luca had always had a special relationship with his grandmother. She doted on him as a child. He was obviously her favorite. He often stayed there during the turmoil of his life, saying it was really his grandmother who raised him and not his own mother was really more of a sister. He says when he was a child, his grandmother took him everywhere. They slept in the same bed, and she even dressed him in her clothes. Though he was with his beloved grandmother, things weren't getting any better at school. Luca would constantly skip classes to go hang out in town with some friends he'd finally made. Then one day, when he was 17, he dropped out of high school completely. He climbed out his bedroom window and ran away with a friend, going to live with his father and dropping out of high school. Anna was apparently very hurt that he would choose his Nazi father over her, despite the fact that her new boyfriend liked to smack him around and hurl slurs at him. So Anna pulls what, in my opinion, is just... I'm just going to say it. it's a total bitch fucking move. I kind of have to agree with you on that. <laughs> uh, Luca's dad would let him borrow his pickup truck to tool around in, despite the fact that Luca had no driver's license. I mean, and that's kind of cool. You know, I ideally you would get the kid a driver's license. He's 17, but whatever. Lending him the truck is, is pretty fun. What does Anna do when she hears about this? because he'd drive over there just to say hi. She calls the cops, not once, but repeatedly. She straight up narks him out, and he's busted. This is his first run-in with the law, but not his last. 
ratted out by his own mother. And in furtherance of the bitch move, she doesn't even tell him it was she who did it. The police reprimanded Eric's dad as well, putting more strain on the relationship. And Eric slash Luca eventually moves out. He drifts for a while, staying with Anna's brother Greg, then into a group home in Lindsay, Ontario. He learned to live in poverty, stole food on occasion, his social worker taking him to food banks. Eric had long dreamed of becoming a model and instinctively knew what every freak does, that you can bend and twist reality to be whatever you want. He cultivated a new, hipper look, bleached his hair, and started wearing tracksuits and long chain necklaces. Sort of an Eminem thing going on. He wound up moving in with two friends of his who were brothers. They came from a wealthy family, and they offered Eric to move into their condo with them on Thorncliffe Park Drive in Toronto. What happens next is contested, but let's just face it now. Everything that's ever happened to Luca Magnata is contested in one way or another. It's bent or changed to fit whatever purpose it needs to serve, to really... There is no truth. Reality is just an evolving thing that can change on a whim. Eric began dating a friend of the brothers, a girl that he himself would admit was a bit sick and had a mental disability. Yeah, reports say she had the mental capacity of a child that was 8 to 12 years old. And she also came from a very wealthy family. And she had lots of credit cards with huge limits. Luca would go into electronic stores with this girl and buy objects on her credit card. Then, supposedly, give the objects to the brother's defense. In the end, he had around $17,000 worth of products, including a television, a DVD player, and mobile phones. Seventeen grand. That's, that's a lot of stuff there. That's a lot of money, a lot of products. A lot of products, yeah. Must have had a cool house. Ooh. Her uh, father, who was a businessman in Woodbridge, Ontario, well, when he got wind that his daughter's credit cards were rapidly becoming maxed out, he got furious and stepped in. According to Luca, the brothers set him up as the fall guy for the whole scheme. Magnata was charged with numerous counts of fraud, he spent 16 days in jail before trial, then finally pled out to four fraud charges and got a year's probation, in part because his lawyer explained to the court how significant Luca's psychiatric issues were, claiming he was schizophrenic and off his medication. Whether Luca was schizophrenic and needed medication, like everything else, is constantly debated. And the answer, it can change on a whim to support whatever theory is needed at that time. Very Orwellian, too. Yeah, it's, it's like chaos magic. What we perceive to be real is what is real to us. You know, the secret is really convincing yourself of an alternative reality first, then projecting that reality 
out into the world. And speaking of projecting whatever image you want out into the world, and the internet being an exhibitor of human oddities that have crafted themselves to fit whatever narrative they wish, Eric discovers the burgeoning world of sex cam work. Which is really, you know, just more insane postmodernism. Viewing these images, creating false realities. Everyone's just like playing a role. So Eric found a way of making money by sitting in front of a computer, chatting to and masturbating for lonely men. And this is somewhere around 2002. So he was in the game really early. You know, like Jenna Brazil, she didn't break big until 2009. And seeing how lucrative sex work was and realizing just how attractive men found him, Luca began stripping at a club called Remington's in Toronto. And apparently, working as an exotic dancer there at uh, Remington's was a job in high demand. And supposedly, he had to give the owner of the club a blowjob just to get the gig. Luca was scared to go on stage at first. And interviews he gives later when trying out for reality shows, he talks about how he was always self-conscious of how he looked compared to the other dancers. He also said it was terribly embarrassing to have someone he knew come into the club and see him naked up on stage. He ended up appearing in a couple low-budget porn movies around this time. In the first two, he played a straight man who was experimenting with gay sex. I guess that's a fetish that's big in the gay porn community. And he fit that bill somehow. He went by Jimmy in these films and was a fab boy in Fab, the gay scene magazine out of Toronto, where he says he's from Russia and wants to be a homicide detective. And he says his best attribute is, quote, my package. I mean, I got a mean dick. Okay, this this one is the one that gets me. He also says, quote, me and my buddies made some videos, which is so creepy knowing what's to come. Right. I love his email. His email is a stunning stud 21 at Hotmail. Beautiful. Nice handle. (laughs) We'll put a picture of this uh, Fab the Gay Scene magazine article on him up on Instagram. It's it's total classic. You got to see it. But low budget porn doesn't pay well. And he couldn't seem to break into the bigger gay porn world. Since Luca hated being on stage, one of the other dancers suggested that he be an escort instead. There was an anonymity to that. In an interview from back then, Luca says he relished being his own boss and setting his own hours. In this way, he was an entrepreneur. As long as he's not an inventorpreneur, they suck. We learned about that already. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Our big takeaway from episode nine. (laughs) And Luca proved to be quite the stunning stud, too, because he had amazing stamina and thrived. In the beginning, he had five to six clients per day. Wow. Five to six a day. Uh, for you know, I think that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And in an interview he gave under the name Jimmy on the Naked News, a news program where the anchors were naked, 
<laughs> obviously. Um, he said it was a lot of fun and a great life. When asked if it interfered with his actual love life, he said he had genuine affection for his customers. And often having sex with them was the same as having sex with a romantic partner. But um, I don't know. I don't think Luca Magnata has genuine affection for anyone other than himself, if I have to be honest. Yeah, maybe just himself. Yeah. Um, but he did make a lot of money and he was generous with his newfound cash. He would often help his grandmother with money giving her a couple hundred bucks here and there. And he helped his mother when he could. Luca even took Anna on a trip to the Bahamas one year, which was the first time she had ever been out of Canada. It's around this point that he legally changes his name from Eric Kirk Newman to Luca Rocco Magnata. I'm glad he did that because I've had trouble like trying to clarify Eric and Luca as the same person. As we go, I did. I see Eric as like this sad little kid, and then I see Luco as this asshole, wannabe gay porn star, just like psychopath. I don't. I just see Eric as always getting picked on and being sad, and then I see Luca as like I don't know, Luca, whatever. Like an alter ego, like Eric two point oh, or yeah, or like just this change. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see if that change was for the better. But it's murder coaster, so I think we know the answer. (laughs) Right. Um, But Luca's mother said she wasn't surprised. It was a perfectly normal thing for an aspiring model to do. Plus, he had a lot of painful memories associated with the name Eric, like you said. But, you know, you can move, you can change your name, but everywhere you go, there you are. Right. That's exactly it. And his partner at the time, a transgender woman by the name of Barbie Swallows, Describes him as being dashing and romantic, picking her up for their first date in a limo and taking her out for an expensive seafood dinner. She says he was obsessed with both serial killers and becoming famous. But Barbie says there was something broken and strange about him. She describes Luca as robotic. Yeah, robotic. I can really see that description. It's like, there's no soul there. It's just an abyss he covers up with a mask, a hole he tries to fill with debauchery, but is never able to. It's it's really like the way Bretty Stanellis describes Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, which, while we're talking about postmodernism, is a masterpiece that defines the term. Definitely. Luca's like Canadian psycho, but yes. Canadian psycho. He tells Barbie that he's Russian um, and (laughs) he behaves strange and paranoid, claiming the phone has been tapped. He would also go to her blog posts on her computer and cut and paste them, claiming he had written them. And as a writer, that strikes a big fucking nerve in me. I've actually had this happen with short stories and it's not fucking cool to plagiarize. There's a certain ring in hell for those who plagiarize. I like to think so, too. And in the end, Luca Magnata is too weird for Barbie Swallows, and she breaks up with him. Aww. She can get credit for her writing again, though. It's okay. Yes. (laughs) But it just gets worse for poor Luca. 
his escort job isn't turning out to be the dream job he expected. He was raped a few times. Once he was assaulted and robbed by a client. He went to the police about it, but they didn't care at all. Mm. Luca claims he was tied up, that he was hit, called names, even pissed on and shit on. He says clients would sometimes videotape the awful things they did to him and post the videos on the internet. Videos where he was bound and whipped until he bled and cried out for mercy. Videos that showed Luca being urinated and defecated upon. He began dating a client named Ron. The two liked each other. They moved in together, and Luca stopped escorting at Ron's insistence. Ron says Luca acted as if he was on stage at all times, strutting and posing. But they fought, they argued, and the two broke up. But Luca is undaunted. He gets a hair transplant and begins trying out for reality shows with just, here we go, you know, if anything is a distorted mirror image of a thing that is fake to begin with, it's the reality show. I mean, just the name is an oxymoron. Reality. Show. I mean, which is it? You know, come on. It can't be both. Yeah, that's such a paradox when you say it like that. Yeah, they, it's like, they're not, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. And in 2007, Luca tries out for a show called Cover Guy, where 30 aspiring male models compete for $1,000 cash and a fashion photo shoot and a one-year membership to a Good Life Fitness Club, plus the front cover of About Magazine. Oh, it's Canada. I think it's A Boot Magazine. A Boot Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, in this interview his voice is like really weird and deep and when they ask him about it he says practice makes perfect i think he's trying to sound russian but he's still got the canadian accent thing going on and uh it's just weird you know he tells them a lot of people tell me i'm devastatingly good looking and he's so modest <laughs> but they reject him, telling him he's not muscular enough, even though he says he can get muscular in the two weeks before they start filming. He'll say anything or, or try to be anything that it's he's just an image of an image, you know, that's fake. And they they tell him to come back next year after he gets some muscles. In 2008, he tries out for Plastic Makes Perfect a reality show about plastic surgery. Luca tells them about his hair transplants, which he describes in great detail, but then quickly says he's had a nose job, circles under his eyes removed, and muscle implants, all of which his mother has denied. I mean, who knows, but if he's lying about having plastic surgery, which it really seems like, to get a job on a reality show, it's just fake 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 mirrors and it is it's a maze it's a mirror maze of bullshit <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna guess he's at least not lying about the nose job because i've seen him and his mom in the same picture they have the same nose and you can look there's pictures of him as a little kid he doesn't look any different <laughs> no and i don't and even know what a muscle implant is to be honest i can't be a common thing 
I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, maybe that's how he gets muscular in two weeks. Right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I think there'd be some recovery time, though. That sounds pretty serious. But Luca tells them, quote, all I care about is how I look. If I don't have my looks, I have nothing. Yeah. And, and so, so very Patrick Bateman again, you know. Our Canadian psycho. Yeah, Canadian psycho. That would have been, we should have called that uh, episode that. That's a good one. He can. does a, we could. Canadian psycho. He does a, an interview for a documentary about bisexual people. He starts it by famously saying, my name is Luca and I don't live on the second floor. It's funny, but did he name himself after this famous 90s song about an abused little boy? Is he trying to get sympathy, but then be tough with Rocco and then glamorous with Magnata as if he's so sexually appealing, he's magnetic? Maybe. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. And as we'll see, he loved names. He loved playing with names. He loved using names to send messages. He picked certain names to try to convey a certain reality. His childhood obsession was Marilyn Monroe, who changed her name from the very plain Norma Jean. In this interview, Luca claims to be very into women, saying he really likes them, but it feels so forced. The filmmaker even says later that she felt like he was trying to be whatever he thought she wanted him to be. In all his interviews, it's like he's desperately trying to be what they want him to be, to have the spotlight thrown on him. It's kind of like <laughs> when Susan Atkins of the Manson family, she was asked by reporters as she was being led from the courtroom once and put into a police vehicle. Will you give an interview? She goes, sure. They ask her if she could get an interview, what she would say. And she says, whatever you want to hear. What an answer. <laughs> No, that's a that's a good one. There's, that clip's on YouTube too. You can find it. It's maybe we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Lucas, yeah, heck yeah. Um, Lucas becoming desperate for fame at this point, though. Twice he makes himself a Wikipedia page, and twice Wikipedia takes it down. Luca builds his own fan base, makes seventy fake Facebook profiles, twenty websites. YouTube channels. He pays people to alter photos of himself to appear like he's doing things like driving behind a fancy sports car or traveling in some country he's never even been to. He's on message boards promoting himself under names like Vladimir and Jimmy, saying, Luca Magnata is the prince of Canada. He is a god here. Oh, man. That is. It's just so, so sad. And almost, it, uh, I almost feel sympathy for this guy. Yeah. Right? If we didn't know what was going to happen, it would be a sadder story. Yeah. And it gets really weird when a rumor starts circulating that Luca's dating Carla Homolka, the notorious Barbie and Ken serial killer who infamously killed her own sister by drugging her to offer up her virginity to her boyfriend for Christmas. Mm. And Carla is famous for being the most hated woman in Canada. Seems like a good reason. 
Yeah, she's a she's a character. We're going to get into her. Don't you worry, fellow freaks. We're going to do a deep psychological dive into this lady. Anyway, it's interesting to note that um, like Carla, Luca would go on to video his crimes. And Carla's serial killer name is Barbie, like the Ken and Barbie killers, right? And Luca did date a trans woman named Barbie. So, like, there's this Barbie and Barbie, and he loved names. That's crazy. Yes, he is. <laughs> I, I found that on my own. I've never noticed anyone ever put those two together either. No, I've never seen that either. That's a good one. You heard it here on Murder Coaster first. <laughs> and those rumors, of course, they were not true at all. But most bizarrely, they all seem to have been spread by Luca himself using his numerous sock puppet accounts. Then he would leave comments under different names, saying what a violent psychopath Luca Magnata was, or confirming the rumors by saying, quote, he's now living in the Caribbean with his new wife, Carla Homoka. As if. <laughs> at, at one point, he was interviewed about the Homoka rumors by a reporter with the Toronto Sun by the name of Joe Warmington, who said Luca just wandered in off the street behaving very oddly and you know he had his hair dyed blonde and Wormington thought his look was an effort to look like Homoko's ex-husband and partner in crime Paul Bernardo Wormington goes on to say he might have been the creepiest person I have ever interviewed you spend 10 seconds with him and you easily come to the conclusion it's all in his own head, and it's all for attention. Now, new fads were coming onto the internet, like shock videos and reaction challenges. People would film themselves watching shocking videos like two girls, one cup, and then post their reactions online. By now, I think everyone's either seen two girls, one cup, or heard of it. Ugh. Basically, it's two girls becoming intimate, while eating each other's poo and puking into each other's mouths. And it's fake as hell, too, of course. The producer even said as much. But it was all the sensation to film yourself watching it in a reaction video. Even big-name celebrities were doing it. Dude, even though I know it's fake, it was still so gross. And when I think about it, I still think it's gross. I watched it just the other day. But I don't know why. <laughs> it's still online. <laughs> Yeah, you can, it's on best score. Oh, and well, um, oh, it's fucking disgusting. It's <laughs> so well, anyone... And the music that's playing in the background is like this romantic, beautiful music. And he's like two women just eating poop and puking on each other. It's so fucking gross. Oh, you know, oddly enough, the music is the last thing that I remember from that whole thing. I don't I don't have any recollection of what the background noise was, but I could see it in my mind's eye. And it's it's nasty even though oh, it's I fake can hear it <laughs> it's like it, 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 it makes it so much more surreal oh these shock videos like tub girl were all the rage and they were getting attention and luca craved that attention from the internet too one of these videos is a snuff film called three guys one hammer that shows ukrainian teenagers bashing a man in the head with a hammer and stabbing him in the face and eyes with a screwdriver until, well, anyway, it's barbaric, 
disgusting, awful, and very, very real. But everyone's watching it and challenging each other to view it and to film their reactions. Yeah, we we talked a bit about it last episode. So uh, in 2010, Luca posted this video to his Facebook page. And a thought must have occurred to him. Here's the route to instant fame. There was another shock website around at this time. This one completely fake called Bonsai Kitten dedicated to the art of raising kittens in jars so that their bodies would be hideously deformed. I got that in a chain email and it made me cry. There's another Aww. really great memory from the early days of the internet. It's Glad to learn that's fake. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this stuff just merges in Luca's mind. Death, kittens, snuff, popularity, the internet. And Luca comes up with an idea that would shock the world and propel him to infamy overnight. An idea that would end with murder, dismemberment, and necrophilia. Soon, Luca Rocco Magnata would post a video of himself holding an ice pick and asking, there's apparently a video circulating around the deep web called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. Does anyone have a copy of it? And this is where we'll pick up next week, dear listeners and fellow freaks, with the conclusion of the postmodern mirror maze of Luca Magnata. And it's going to be wild. And, hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's Murder Coaster Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next week. <laughs>